0: Section 2. Comments on Current Critical Issues In this section, I review and analyze some of the current critical issues that affect our company. 1. We need to continue to restore trust in the strength of the U.S. banking system and global systemically important financial institutions. An enormous amount has been accomplished in the last decade. The strength, stability, and resiliency of the financial system have been fundamentally improved over the course of the last 10 years. While I don't agree with all of the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act Dodd-Frank regulations, the bill did give regulators needed authority to fix our financial system's most critical flaws. These post-crisis reforms have made banks much safer and sounder in the three most important areas, capital, liquidity, and resolution and recovery. Large banks, defined as global systemically important financial institutions, have more than doubled their highest quality capital to protect against losses, and they have tripled their liquid assets to total assets ratio to protect against unexpected net cash outflows. This allows healthy banks to weather extreme stress while continuing to provide credit and support to their clients. See Message to Employees on pages 27 through 28 that describes many of the lessons learned from the crisis and the extensive steps we took to help our clients. Here's an eye-opening example of how much capital is now in the system. Under the Fed's most extreme stress testing scenario, where 35 of the largest American banks bear extreme losses, as if each were the worst bank in the system, the combined losses are about 6% of the total loss-absorbing resources of those 35 banks. JP Morgan Chase alone has nearly three times the loss-absorbing resources to cover the projected losses of all of these 35 banks. See chart below. For reference, see chart. Loss-absorbing resources of U.S. Sci-Fi banks combined. In addition, resolution and recovery regulations have given regulators both the legal authority and the tools to manage a failing or failed institution. See my comments on the sidebar on page 29 about how Lehman Brothers would have played out under today's new rules. This allows regulators to minimize the impact of a major failed institution on both taxpayers and the system. Looking back on the financial crisis. September 2018 message to employees, 10 years after the financial crisis. Dear colleagues, a decade has passed since the collapse of Lehman Brothers. So now is a good time to reflect on the financial crisis that was raging 10 years ago this month. A lot has been written, and far more is still to be written on this crisis. But I would like to share a few thoughts with you on that extraordinary period of time and everything that all of you at J.P. Morgan Chase did to try to help. The gathering storm hit with a vengeance. While the collapse of Lehman in September 2008 was the epicenter of the crisis, it was actually far more complex than that. The roots go back to before 2006. By late 2006, we already saw problems in subprime mortgages, leveraged lending, and quantitative investing. With the onset of Basel II, leverage at investment banks, not commercial banks, more than doubled, as did shadow banking. Think structured investment vehicles, collateralized debt obligations, money market funds, and so on. This was often funded by unsecured, undependable short-term wholesale borrowing. Then, the biggest problem of all presented itself. It was not just subprime mortgages that were flawed, but all mortgages. This happened, in hindsight, by bad underwriting, government policy that fueled and fostered inappropriate mortgage lending, higher and higher loan-to-values, less and less cash down, weaker appraisals and insufficient income certification, unscrupulous brokers, and cavalier investors. The banks, though not the worst actors in mortgages, joined the party too. When the world realized that $1 trillion would ultimately be lost in mortgages, panic ensued. There were multiple failures, mortgage brokers, savings and loans, SNL, including Washington Mutual, WAMU, and IndyMac, as well as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which were the largest financial failures of all time culminating in the dramatic failure of Lehman, followed by the extraordinary bailouts of AIG and other major financial institutions. J.P. Morgan Chase did everything it possibly could do to help during this time. On March 16, 2008, we announced our acquisition of Bear Stearns, a company with $300 billion of assets, which had collapsed and had fatal problems. We were essentially buying a house, but it was a house on fire. And we did this at the request of the U.S. government, thinking at the time that this could help head off a terrible crisis. On September 25, 2008, ten days after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, we bought the largest SNL, WaMu, another company that had 300 billion dollars of assets. We took other extraordinary actions, often at calculated but great risk to J.P. Morgan Chase, to support clients, including governments, and to support the markets in general we loaned $70 billion in the global interbank market when it was needed most. With markets in complete turmoil, we were the only bank willing to single-handedly lend $4 billion to the state of California, $2 billion to the state of New Jersey, and $1 billion to the state of Illinois. Additionally, and frequently, we loaned or raised for our clients $1.3 trillion at consistent and fair rates, in many cases, far below what the market would have demanded. And we provided more than $100 billion to local governments, municipalities, schools, hospitals, and not-for-profits over the course of 2009. Many other banks did the same. You probably will be surprised to find out that we lent a tremendous amount of money to Lehman before the crisis, and even more after the crisis. In fact, at the request of the Federal Reserve, we took extraordinary risks to lend more than $80 billion on a secured basis to Lehman, after its bankruptcy, to help facilitate sales of assets in as orderly a way as possible to minimize disruption in the markets. This was a traumatic, historic period of time, not just for the financial system, but for the world as a whole. We endured a -a once-in-a-generation economic, political, and social storm, and because of you, we have emerged 10 years after this crisis as a company of which we can all be proud. The Aftermath and Lessons Learned Many people still ask me about the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, a government program that provided funding to banks in the midst of the crisis. J.P. Morgan Chase did not want or need TARP money, but we recognized that if the healthy banks did not take it, no one else could, out of fear that the market would lose confidence in them. And while it helped create the false rallying cry that all the banks needed support, the government, both the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, was trying everything it could in addition to TARP. And the Federal Reserve and the Treasury should be congratulated for the extraordinary actions they took to stave off a far worse crisis. In hindsight, it is easy to criticize any specific action. But in total, the government succeeded in avoiding a calamity. There were many lessons learned from the crisis. The need for plenty of capital and liquidity, proper underwriting and regulations that are constantly refined, fair, and appropriate. In fact, regulators should take a victory lap because Lehman, Bear Stearns, AIG, and multiple other failures effectively could not happen today because of the new rules and requirements. We entered the crisis with the capital, liquidity, earnings, diversity of businesses, people, and a risk management culture that enabled us to avoid most, but unfortunately not all of the issues exposed by the crisis. These strengths also helped us to weather the economic crisis and to continue to play a central role in supporting our clients and our communities and rebuilding the U.S. economy. Counter to what most people think, many of the extreme actions we took were not done to make a profit. They were done to support our country and the financial system. What stood out most was our character and capabilities which make JP Morgan Chase what it is today. When the global financial crisis unfolded in 2008, the people of JP Morgan Chase understood the vital role our firm needed to play and felt a deep responsibility to those who rely on us. It was this sense of responsibility that enabled us to move beyond the challenges we were facing at that time and maintain a focus on what really matters: taking care of our clients helping the communities in which we operate, all while under extreme pressure from both the markets and the body politic, and protecting our company. How we manage through the crisis is a testimony to the collective strength of character and commitment of our people. During those chaotic days throughout the crisis and its aftermath, many of our people had to work around the clock, seven days a week for months on end, and they did it without complaint. The biggest lesson of the crisis? the quality character culture and capabilities of your partners are paramount looking back and then looking around at the company we are today i am filled with awe and admiration for jp morgan chase these past 10 years have been part of a challenging yet defining decade today jp morgan chase is among the leaders in most of our businesses i can't tell you how proud i am to be your partner And to witness your extraordinary performance i can't thank our current and former employees enough for helping us get through those turbulent times and for the company we have become jamie lehman redux it simply would not have failed but it would have been easily manageable if it did fail as i mentioned in my shareholder letter in 2016 it is instructive to look at what would happen if Lehman were to fail in today's regulatory regime. First of all, it is highly unlikely the firm would fail because under today's capital rules, Lehman's equity capital will be approximately $45 billion instead of $23 billion, which it was in 2007. In addition, Lehman would have far stronger liquidity and bail inable debt. And finally, the firm would have been forced to raise capital much earlier in the process. Lehman simply would not have failed. However, if by the remotest shooting star possibility Lehman failed anyway, regulators would now have the legal authority to put the firm in receivership. They did not have that ability back in 2007, 2008. At the moment of failure, unsecured debt of approximately $120 billion would be immediately converted to equity. New Lehman would be the best capitalized bank in the world. In addition, Derivatives contracts would not be triggered, and cash would continue to move through the pipes of the financial system. Legislators and regulators should be applauded for what they have done to solve the too-big-to-fail problem, though I should point out that this was accomplished by putting some basic rules in place, not the thousands of other rules layered atop them. 2. We have to remind ourselves that responsible banking is good and safe banking. One of the critical responsibilities of banks is to take a rigorous and disciplined approach to allocating capital in the financial system, whether they do it directly through loans or through public and private capital markets. Banks need to do this knowing there will be recessions and that they should plan to support their clients through their most difficult times. We did exactly that throughout the 2008 crisis. Again, see message to employees on pages 27 through 28. While many people focus on market making, which of course entails risk, we buy and sell about $2 trillion a day of various securities around the world. This risk taking is carefully monitored and largely hedged. To put risk taking and market making a little bit in perspective, in the last five years, we have lost money trading on only 11 days, and the loss was usually small and never more than about two times the average normal trading day revenue. Overall, Loans are still the biggest risk that banks take. Our loan losses last year were $5 billion, and in the worst year of the Great Recession, our loan losses were approximately $24 billion. Responsible banks cannot always give customers what they want. Making bad and unworthy loans ultimately is bad for both the bank and the customer. Being a responsible bank means you can't always give customers what they want, and therefore it is unlikely that all of your customers are going to like you. We are fundamentally not in the same position as most businesses. If a customer has the money, most businesses will sell their goods and services to that customer. Banks can't do that. Sometimes we have to say no or enforce rules that may be unpopular. I have always believed that this necessary discipline with customers is one of the reasons that historically banks have not been popular. Banks are under constant pressure, including political pressure, to make loans. Remember subprime mortgages? Even when they should not. But when and if something goes wrong with loans, even when proper and responsible underwriting is done, banks will come under a lot of legal, regulatory and political scrutiny and should expect to be blamed for potentially causing the problem. These conflicting pressures to make or not make loans will always exist and need to be properly navigated by a good bank client selection is critical. Client selection is one of the most important things we do. If one bank builds a book of business with clients of high character, and another bank builds its business with clients of low character, who are usually pushing sound banking practices to the limit, it's clear which bank will succeed over time. Therefore, turning down clients, which can sometimes be hard to do, is often the only way to be a responsible bank. Risk-taking is a detailed, analytical process and includes extensive risk mitigation. Shareholders may be surprised to find out that, fundamentally, we are not a risk-taking, but rather a risk-mitigating institution. Risk mitigation is not guessing. It is a thoughtful, detailed, analytical process that leads to measured decision-making. Participants in our risk meetings can attest that while we are adamant about serving clients, We are also fanatic about understanding and mitigating some of those associated risks. So in addition to proper client selection, risks are mitigated through simplification, diversification, hedging, syndication, covenants, hard limits, continuous monitoring, and fast reaction to problems. We deeply analyze everything so we can shoulder appropriate risk for and with our clients. We are their financial partner. A recent example in the oil and gas sector shows how we balance risk while serving clients in tough times. From 2014 to 2016, oil prices collapsed from a high of $108 per barrel to a low of $26 per barrel. We were carrying approximately 250 loans to smaller oil and gas companies, mostly based in Houston, referred to in the industry as reserve-based loans, or RBLs. The proven oil and gas reserves in the ground served as the collateral for these loans, as reviewed by both J.P. Morgan's petroleum engineers and third-party engineering consultants. We had $3 billion in outstanding loans under the RBL structure, and more to the oil industry as a whole. While we made these loans conservatively, we knew that low oil prices at the bottom of the cycle put us at great risk of loan losses, maybe even as high as $500 million. Our view was that we were going to work with these borrowers. For example, extend the loans and try to help the companies survive this rough patch. Of course, we put up additional loan loss reserves to account for possible losses. At one point, surprisingly, some regulators made it clear that they did not want banks to extend these loans because they were too risky. But we thought it was important, even at the risk of losing hundreds of millions of dollars, something that we were positioned to be able to do to help our clients get through this tough time rather than desert them when they needed us most. And sticking with our clients is exactly what we did. We thought regulators were overreacting and indeed, our losses ultimately were minuscule. Because of these actions, we are still welcome in Houston. Three, we believe in good regulation, both to help America grow and improve financial stability. I want to be very clear that we do not advocate for the repeal of Dodd-Frank. We believe that the strength and resilience of the U.S. financial system have benefited from the law. 10 years out from the crisis, however, it is appropriate for policymakers to examine areas of our regulatory framework that are excessive, overlapping, inefficient, or duplicative. At the same time, they should identify areas where banks can promote economic growth without impacting the very important progress we have made on safety and soundness. In fact, a stronger economy, by definition, is a safer economy. Our goal should be to achieve a rational, calibrated approach to regulation that strikes the right balance. This should be an ongoing and rigorous process that does not require any significant piece of legislation and should not be politicized. Here are a few areas where we think recalibration would be good not only for banks, but for consumers and the economy as a whole. Carefully monitor the growing shadow bank system. While we do not believe that the rise in non-banks and shadow banking has reached the point of systemic risk, the growth in non-bank mortgage lending, student lending, leveraged lending, and some consumer lending is accelerating and needs to be assiduously monitored. We do this monitoring regularly as part of our own business. Growth in shadow banking has been possible because rules and regulations imposed upon banks are not necessarily imposed upon these non-bank lenders, which exemplifies the risk of not having the new rules properly calibrated. An additional risk is that many of these non-bank lenders will not be able to continue lending in difficult economic times. Their borrowers will become stranded. Banks traditionally try to continue lending to their customers in tough times. The country desperately needs mortgage reform it would add to America's economic growth. Reducing onerous and unnecessary origination and servicing requirements, there are 3,000 federal and state requirements today, and opening up the securitization markets for safe loans would dramatically improve the cost and availability of mortgages to consumers, particularly the young, the self-employed, and those with prior defaults. And these would not be subprime mortgages, but mortgages that we should be making. By taking this step, our economists believe that home and economic growth would increase by up to 0.2% a year. In the early 2000s, bad mortgage laws helped create the Great Recession of 2008. Today, bad mortgage rules are hindering the healthy growth of the U.S. economy. Because there are so many regulators involved in crafting the new rules, coupled with political intervention that isn't always helpful, it is hard to achieve the much-needed mortgage reform. This has become a critical issue and one reason why banks have been moving away from significant parts of the mortgage business. That business in particular highlights one of the flaws of our complicated capital allocation regime. The best way to risk manage a bank is to use risk weights that are actually based on risk. However, since most banks are also constrained by standardized capital, a capital measure that does not risk adjust for the lower risk of having a properly underwritten prime mortgage, owning mortgages becomes hugely unprofitable. Because of these significant issues, we are intensely reviewing our role in originating, servicing, and holding mortgages. The odds are increasing that we will need to materially change our mortgage strategy going forward. We also need to get the recalibration of other regulatory requirements right, particularly around operational risk capital, the Fed's comprehensive capital analysis and review, CCAR stress test, and the additional allocation of capital to global systemically important banks, GSIB. If we don't do so, certain products and services will continue to be pushed outside the banking system, where they are fundamentally not regulated, distorting markets and raising the cost of credit for clients. Operational risk capital. We now hold nearly $400 billion of operational risk-weighted assets, which means we hold more than $40 billion of equity for assets that don't exist. This was a new calculation added after the crisis to recognize that banks also bear serious operational risk, stemming from lawsuits, processing errors, and other issues. I agree that all banks bear operational risk, yet this is also true for all companies. Most companies, including banks, have earnings to pay for operational risk, and the calculation that gets us to $400 billion is questionable and so complex that I am NOT going to explain it here. Finally, most of our operational risk assets stem from Bear Stearns and WAMU's subprime mortgage products that we don't even offer anymore. Tying up capital in perpetuity, looking for shadows on the wall, is probably not the best idea for fostering growth in America. Comprehensive Capital Analysis Review I deeply believe in stress testing, but I do have issues with CCAR. First, it consists of only a single test. There are many things that can go wrong that should be stress test, which is unlikely to prepare anyone, banks, or regulators adequately. There is an arbitrariness to a single test. Moreover, I don't think CCAR accurately represents what a loss would look like in the nine quarters after a Lehman-type event. Remember that in the nine quarters following the actual Lehman collapse, J.P. Morgan Chase earned $30 billion. One of the refrains that we hear about CCAR results is they show that most banks, at the worst part of the stress cycle, can barely cover their required capital. This is fundamentally inaccurate. The CCAR test can give this false impression because it requires banks to do unnatural things, such as continuing all stock buybacks, even when it is completely obvious that banks wouldn't or couldn't do this. As a result, we don't rely solely on CCAR, and we stress test hundreds of scenarios a month, preparing ourselves for circumstances far worse than CCAR stress. While CCAR losses may exceed what banks are likely to experience, they do appropriately include benefits that banks receive from being diversified and from having healthy profit margins. And CCAR is an effective built-in counter-cyclical buffer because its whole purpose is to ensure adequate capital at the worst point of a major stress event. Capital requirements for GSIBs, however, are completely different. GSIB Capital Requirements My biggest issue is with GSIB capital requirements, and since they may be added to the CCAR stress test, they become even more important. Most of the factors used in GSIB requirements are not risk-adjusted, and many of the calculations have no fundamental underpinning or logical justification. Their methodology irrationally multiplies certain factors over and over, and many of the facts are simply unjustified on any basis. For example, one of the risks is called substitutability, which is supposed to measure the risk that we won't be able to replace certain services of a large bank that fails or retrenches during a crisis. The specific factors used to calculate this risk are market share of equity and debt underwriting and market making. But when Lehman failed, no one had a problem in replacing any of these activities. For another example, American regulators simply doubled thresholds for American banks versus international competition and have never adjusted them as they were supposed to do for economic growth, for other new regulations like total loss-absorbing capacity and liquidity, or for the fact that GSIB banks have become a smaller part of the financial system. Now regulators are talking about adding GSIB requirements to CCAR which is only logical if the GSIB charge itself makes sense in the first place. If GSIB regulation is to become this important, it needs thorough justification. Later in this letter, I discuss some possible adverse consequences to the U.S. financial system because of the interplay between these factors in a downturn. One comment that we continue to hear is that U.S. banks are now doing quite well despite evidence that GSIB requirements are tougher on U.S. banks than on foreign banks. But that outperformance is not ordained from above, and may not always be the case. We should calculate data the right way, and U.S. banks, their employees, shareholders, and the communities they serve should not be put at a permanent disadvantage. Proper calibration of financial regulation can enhance the growth and resiliency of the U.S. economy, which actually reduces systemic risk and helps banks safely serve more clients. Four. We believe stock buybacks are an essential part of proper capital allocation, but secondary to long-term investing. I have already noted that stock buybacks, though sometimes misused, are an important tool that businesses must have to reallocate excess capital. To reiterate, this should be done only after proper investments for the future have been considered. A recent complaint is that companies, partially due to tax reform, have used their excess capital to buy back more stock instead of investing in their business. While this is true, you should keep in mind three things. First, as stock buybacks increased in 2018, so did corporate capital expenditures and research and development. R&D. In fact, contrary to popular belief, capital expenditures as a percentage of GDP are higher today. in the good old days of the 1950s and 1960s. Second, companies tend to buy back stock when they don't see a good use for capital in the next year or two. We believe that as companies adjust to the new higher cash flows, they will begin to reinvest more of that money in the United States. The benefit of tax reform is the long-term, multi-year cumulative effect of capital retained and reinvested in the United States. And third, the capital that was used to buy back stock did not disappear. It was given to shareholders, who then put it to a better and higher use of their own choosing. Here is one concluding comment on long-term investing. Many investors legitimately demand that companies think long-term and explain their strategies and policies. Meanwhile, these same investors, who demand long-term thinking from companies, often invest in funds that are paid a lot of money for how a stock performs in one year, I hope these investors will appreciate the disconnect and hope they will consider the pressures for short-term performance they may have helped to create. 5. On the importance of the cloud and artificial intelligence, we are all in. The power of the cloud is real. We were a little slow in adopting the cloud, for which I am partially responsible. My early thinking about the cloud was that it was just another term for outsourcing. I held firm to the view, which is somewhat still true, that we can run our own data centers, networks, and applications as efficiently as anyone. But here's the critical point. Cloud capabilities are far more extensive, and we are now full speed ahead. Let me cite a couple of examples. The cloud gives us the ability to achieve rapid scale and elasticity of computing power exponentially beyond our own capacity. This will be especially relevant as we scale up our artificial intelligence efforts. The cloud platform is agile and flexible. It offers access to datasets, advanced analytics, and machine learning capabilities beyond our own. It increases developers' effectiveness by multiples. You can almost click and drop new elements into existing programs, as opposed to writing extensive new code. For instance, adding databases and or machine learning to an application can be done almost instantaneously. And certain tasks, such as testing code and provisioning compute power, are automated. The cloud provides a software development experience that is frictionless and allows our engineers to prototype quickly and learn fast, as well as increase the speed of delivering new capabilities to our customers and clients. It is important to note That the cloud has matured to the point where it can meet the high expectations that are set by large enterprises that have fairly intense demands around security, audit procedures, access to systems, cybersecurity, and business resiliency. We will be rapidly refactoring most of our applications to take full advantage of cloud computing. We then can decide whether it is more advantageous to run our applications on the external cloud or the internal cloud. The internal cloud will have many of the benefits of the external cloud's scalable and efficient platforms. One final but key issue. Agile platforms and cloud capabilities not only allow you to do things much faster, but also enable you to organize teams differently. You can create smaller teams of 5 to 20 people who can be continually reimagining, reinventing, and rolling out new products and services in a few days instead of months the power of artificial intelligence and machine learning is real. These technologies already are helping us reduce risk and fraud, upgrade customer service, improve underwriting, and enhance marketing across the firm. And this is just the beginning. As our management teams get better at understanding the power of AI and machine learning, these tools are rapidly being deployed across virtually everything we do. We can also use artificial intelligence to try to achieve certain desired outcomes, such as making mortgages even more available to minorities. A few examples will suffice. In the corporate and investment bank, DeepX leverages machine learning to assist our equities algorithms globally to execute transactions across 1,300 stocks a day. And this total is rising as we roll out DeepX to new countries. Across our company, we will be deploying virtual assistants, robots driven by artificial intelligence, to handle tasks such as maintaining internal help desks, tracking down errors and routing inquiries. In consumer marketing, we are better able to customize insights and offerings for individual customers, based on, for example, their ability to save or invest, their travel preferences, or the availability of discounts on brands they like. Technological solutions help us do better underwriting expediting the mortgage or automobile loan approval process, letting the customer accept the loan in a couple of clicks, and then start shopping for a home or car. In our consumer operations, we are using AI and machine learning techniques for ATM cash management to optimize cash and devices, reduce the cost of reloads, and schedule ATM maintenance and our initial results from machine learning fraud applications are expected to drive approximately $150 million of annual benefits and countless efficiencies. For example, machine learning is helping to deliver a better customer experience while also prioritizing safety at the point of sale where fraud losses have been reduced significantly with automated decisions on transactions made in milliseconds. We are now able to approve 1 million additional good customers who would have been declined for potential fraud, and also decline approximately 1 million additional fraudsters who would have been approved. Machine learning will also curtail check fraud losses by analyzing signatures, payee names, and check features in real time. Over time, AI will also dramatically improve anti-money laundering Bank Secrecy Act protocols and processes, as well as other complex compliance requirements. We will try to retrain and redeploy our workforce as AI reduces certain types of jobs. We are evaluating all of our jobs to determine which are most susceptible to being lost through AI. We will plan ahead so we can retrain or deploy our employees both for other roles inside the company and, if necessary, outside the company. The combined power of virtually unlimited computing strength, AI applied to almost anything, and the ability to use vast sets of data and rapidly change applications is extraordinary. We have only begun to take advantage of the opportunities for the company and for our customers. Six, we remain devoted and diligent to protect privacy and stay cyber safe. We will do what it takes. The threat of cybersecurity may very well be the biggest threat to the US financial system. I have written in previous letters about the enormous effort and resources we dedicate to protect ourselves and our clients. We spend nearly $600 million a year on these efforts and have more than 3,000 employees deployed to this mission in some way. Indirectly, we also spend a lot of time and effort trying to protect our company in different ways as part of the ordinary course of running the business. But the financial system is interconnected, and adversaries are smart and relentless so we must continue to be vigilant. The good news is that the industry, plus many other industries, along with the full power of the federal government, is increasingly being mobilized to combat this threat. The issues around privacy are real. We have spoken frequently in the past about the importance of safeguarding the privacy of our customers. We already do this extensively, and in fact, we are inventing new products to make it easier for our customers to understand where we send their data, with their permission, as well as how to change or restrict what we do with that data. New laws in Europe stipulate that consumers should be able to see what data companies have on file about them and to correct or delete this information if they choose. These are the right principles, but they are very complex to execute. It is imperative that the U.S. government thoughtfully design policies to protect its consumers and that these policies be national versus state-specific. Different state laws around privacy rules would create a virtually impossible legal, compliance, and regulatory monitoring situation. But maybe the most critical privacy issue of all relates to protecting our democracy. Our First Amendment rights do not extend to foreign governments, entities, or individuals. The openness of the Internet means that trolls, foreign governments, and others are aggressively using social media and other platforms to confuse and distort information. They should not be allowed to secretly or dishonestly advertise or even promote ideas on media and social networks. We believe there are ways to address this, and we will be talking more about this issue in the future. 7. We know there are risks on the horizon that will eventually demand our attention. In spite of all the uncertainty, the U.S. economy continues to grow in 2019, albeit more slowly than in 2018. Employment and wages are going up, inflation is moderate, financial markets are healthy, and consumer and business confidence remains strong, although down from all-time highs. The consumer balance sheet and credit are in rather good shape, and housing, though not particularly strong, is in short supply in many U.S. cities, which should eventually be a tailwind. Before I review some of the serious and possibly increasing risks that we may confront in the years ahead, I do want to review what happened in the 4th quarter of 2018. The 4th quarter of 2018 might be a harbinger of things to come. Going into the final months of last year, optimism about the global economy prevailed, and this was reflected in the stock and bond markets. But in the 4th quarter, growth slowed in Germany, Italy repudiated European Union rules, Brexit uncertainty remained, and fear spiked around America's trade issues with China. Among other geopolitical tensions, the U.S. government shutdown began. In addition, more questions arose about interest rate increases in the United States and the effect of the reversal of unprecedented quantitative easing, particularly in this country. These issues, which reduced growth forecasts and increased uncertainty, should legitimately cause stock prices to drop and bond spreads to increase. However, stock markets fell 20% investment-grade bond spreads gapped out by 36%, and certain markets, like initial public offerings and high yield, virtually closed down. Even at the time, these large swings seemed to be an overreaction, but they highlight two critical issues. One, which we never forget, is that investor sentiment can veer widely from optimism to pessimism based on little fundamental change. And second, for the fourth or fifth time in this recovery, there were excessive moves in the market, with rapidly increasing volatility accompanied by steep drops in liquidity. Market reactions do not always accurately reflect the real economy, and therefore policymakers and even companies should not overreact to them. But they do reflect market participant views of changing probabilities and possibilities of economic outcomes. Thus, policymakers and banks, particularly the Fed, must necessarily because they need to think forward, take an assessment of these issues into account. With this backdrop, I will discuss some of the serious issues on people's minds, with more on liquidity later. There are legitimate concerns around China's economy in addition to trade, but they are manageable. To fully understand China, you have to do a fair assessment of all its strengths and weaknesses Over the last 40 years, China has done a highly effective job of getting itself to this point of economic development. But in the next 40 years, the country will have to confront serious issues. The Chinese lack enough food, water, and energy. Corruption continues to be a problem. State-owned enterprises are often inefficient. Corporate and government debt levels are growing rapidly. Financial markets lack depth, transparency, and adequate rule of law and Asia is a very complex part of the world, geopolitically speaking. Just as important, not enough people participate in the nation's political system. Chinese leadership is well aware of these issues and talks about many of them quite openly. I say none of this to be negative about China. Indeed, I have enormous respect for what the Chinese have accomplished in the economic realm. But just to give a balanced view, and in spite of these difficulties, We believe that China is well on its way to becoming a fully developed nation, though the future will probably entail more uncertainty and moments of slower growth, like the rest of us, than in the past. Disruption of trade is another risk for China. The United States' trade issues with China are substantial and real. They include the theft or forced transfer of intellectual property, lack of bilateral investment rights, giving ownership or control of investments, onerous non-tariff barriers, unfair subsidies or benefits for state-owned enterprises, and the lack of rapid enforcement of any disagreements. The U.S. position is supported, though in an uncoordinated way, by our Japanese and European allies. We should only expect China to do what is in its own self-interest, but we believe that it should and will agree to some of the United States' trade demands, because ultimately— the changes will create a stronger Chinese economy. We should also point out that over the last 30 years, the Chinese have been on a high-speed path that includes increasing transparency and economic reform. And while the momentum slows down periodically, they have continued relentlessly on that path. We believe the odds are high that a fair trade deal will eventually be worked out. But if not, there could be serious repercussions. China can deal with many serious situations because unlike developed democratic nations, it can both macromanage and micromanage its economy and move very fast. Government officials can pull, in a coordinated way, fiscal, monetary, and industrial policy levers to maintain the growth and employment they want. And they have the control and wherewithal to do it. That being said, The American public should understand that China does not have a straight road to becoming the dominant economic power. The nation simply has too much to overcome in the foreseeable future. If China and the United States can maintain a healthy strategic and economic relationship, and that should be our goal, it could greatly benefit both countries, as well as the rest of the world. Debt levels are increasing around the world, although this debt is mitigated because much of it is sovereign debt which is different from corporate and consumer debt. If countries essentially owe debt to themselves, not to creditors outside their country, they can generally manage their debt. America's total debt to GDP is just about 80%, while Japan's is approaching 200%. Such debt is not necessarily a good thing, because it can be politically destabilizing and overcomplicate policymaking. However, it is generally manageable, because if a nation owes money to itself, it is essentially relocating its income across various interest groups within the country. If the country can continue to grow, it can still create more income for its citizens. America's debt level is rapidly increasing, but is not at the danger level. While America does owe an excess of $6 trillion, essentially 40% of its publicly held debt, to creditors outside the country, U.S. companies and investors hold more than $25 trillion in total claims on foreigners, including more than $12 trillion of foreign portfolio holdings, and the U.S. economy is worth more than $100 trillion. So we earn more on foreign assets than we pay to foreign creditors. This is not a major issue. However, our country's debt level over the next 30 years will start to increase exponentially, and at a certain point, this could cause concern in global capital markets. We have time to address this problem, but we should start to deal with the issue well before it becomes a crisis. People also point to emerging market debt, both corporate and sovereign, as a potential issue. But the emerging markets, both countries and companies, are much bigger and stronger than they were in the past. They have more foreign exchange reserves and, generally, more effective risk management of currency and interest rate mismatches. Leverage lending is increasing particularly through shadow banks. Total leveraged lending in the United States is approximately $2.3 trillion. About 25% of the loans are owned by banks, the majority in more senior positions, and the remaining 75% are owned by shadow banks or non-banks. Deconstructing that number a bit, about $1.8 trillion is in US institutional leveraged term loans, approximately 30% of which are owned by banks we estimate that approximately $500 billion of direct loans are owned exclusively by non-banks. While leveraged lending is a growing issue, and one that we are monitoring, we don't think this is yet of the size or quality to cause systemic issues in the financial system. This does not mean it won't create some issues. When things get bad, invariably prices drop dramatically. Certain types of high-yield debt cannot be refinanced, etc. But at this level... It is still a manageable issue. There are growing geopolitical tensions, with less certainty around American global leadership. Geopolitical tensions are always there. Just reading the newspaper in any week in any year since World War II would make anyone pretty worried. But it does appear that geopolitical tensions are growing. Let me mention a few Russian aggression, Middle East conflicts, Venezuela, North Korea, Iran, Turkey. Brexit, and European politics generally. It's always difficult to understand the effect of geopolitical uncertainty. But it is now heightened due to uncertainty around how the United States intends to exercise global leadership. This uncertainty may very well be the biggest new unknown factor affecting critical geopolitical and economic issues. The chance of bad policy errors is increasing. In this risk section and in the next section on public policy, I feel compelled to emphasize an obvious point. Bad public policy is a major risk. It could be central banks and monetary policy, trade snafus, or simply deep political gridlock in an increasingly complex world. But bad policymaking is definitely an increasing risk for the global economy. The confusion and uncertainty around liquidity are causing some legitimate concerns. Several times in the last few years, Including in the fourth quarter of 2018, markets exhibited rapid losses of liquidity. Although fortunately, and importantly, the markets recovered in all cases. But that was in the context of a good environment. The ongoing debate around liquidity and short-term losses of liquidity in the market is an important one. We consider it in two ways. Traditional liquidity and macro liquidity. Traditional liquidity. I call it micro liquidity here and it generally refers to the width of the bid-ask spread, as well as the size and speed with which securities can be bought or sold without dramatically affecting their price. There is no question that some micro-liquidity is more constrained than in the past due to bank capital, liquidity, and Volcker rule requirements. In addition, high-frequency traders generally create some intraday liquidity within a day, though even this is unreliable in a downturn. Because they rarely take positions inter-day, day-to-day, traders do not create real liquidity. But my view is that they increase the volatility of liquidity over time. There is no question that rules and regulations also cause unwanted and unnecessary distortions in money market vehicles, such as repos and swaps, particularly at quarter end. If you look at liquidity from before the financial crisis to today, In fairly liquid markets like treasuries, swaps, and equities, there is a noticeable difference. In good markets, liquidity is essentially high and is almost at the same level today as it was before the crisis. But when markets became volatile in the last several years, liquidity dropped much further and faster than it did before the crisis. It is important to remember that this happened in good times. Therefore, it is reasonable to expect that what we have been experiencing is now the new normal of liquidity and that we should be prepared for it to be even worse in truly difficult times. Macro liquidity. This describes a broader view of financial conditions. For example, is it easy to borrow and lend? Are banks able to increase their lending? Is the cost of borrowing going up? Is the Fed adding or reducing liquidity in the system, essentially by buying or selling treasuries? There is no doubt that new regulations, particularly bank liquidity requirements, dramatically reduce the ability of the Fed to increase bank lending today by shoring up bank reserves. In the old days, the central bank could effectively create excess reserves by buying treasuries. These excess reserves were lendable by the bank. Today, such reserves are often not lendable due to new liquidity rules. So bank lending as a function of deposits is, in effect, permanently reduced. The notion of money velocity and, in fact, the transmission of monetary policy are therefore different from the past, and it is hard to calculate the full effect of all these changes. It is extremely difficult for us, and probably even for the Fed, to know when and at what level the removal of cash, liquidity, from the system starts to significantly affect macro or micro liquidity. We will, however, probably know it when we see it. There may be too much certainty that growth will be slow and inflation subdued. There is still global growth and employment and wages continue to go up. However, this has been a very slow recovery and it is possible that the normal increase of inflation late in the cycle due to wage demands and limited supply can still happen. We don't see it today, but I would not rule it out. In addition, 10-year bond spreads have been suppressed in some way by the extreme quantitative easing around the world. If that ever reverses in a material way, how could it not have an effect on the 10-year bond? Finally, I would not look at the yield curve and its potential inversion as giving the same signals as in the past. There has simply been too much interference in the global markets by central banks and regulators to understand its full effect on the yield curve expect banks to be far more constrained going into the next real downturn. Today is nothing like 2008. There are fewer leveraged financial assets in the system now than a decade ago. In 2008, huge losses in the mortgage market forced consumers and companies to sell assets acquired by borrowing. Fundamentally, market panic ensued. Now there is far less borrowing against assets, and it is unlikely that there will be a lot of forced selling as a result. However, keep in mind that it is still possible for investors to sell lots of assets if any form of market panic takes place. When the next real downturn begins, banks will be constrained, both psychologically and by new regulations, from lending freely into the marketplace, as many of us did in 2008 and 2009. New regulations mean that banks will have to maintain more liquidity going into a downturn, be prepared for the impacts of even tougher stress tests, and hold more capital because capital requirements are even more pro-cyclical than in the past. Effectively, some new rules will force capital to the sidelines, just when it might be needed most by clients and the markets. For example, in the next financial crisis, Morgan Chase will simply be unable to take some of the actions we took in 2008, as described in the sidebar on pages 27-28. The Fed is still quite powerful and retains numerous tools to deal with many of the issues described above. There is excessive focus on what the Fed says and does in the short term. The Fed appropriately and by necessity needs to be data dependent. How could it be otherwise? And of course, while proper policy requires Fed officials to constantly think about the future, though it does not require them to make specific forecasts public, they can't know what the future holds with any certainty. But they are deeply knowledgeable, flexible, and appropriately willing to change their minds. And, counter to what you often hear today, they retain a large number of tools at their disposal. They can change short-term rates at will, and in fact, can affect change on longer-term rates if they want. With a few simple words, they can change the future expectations of the interest rate curve, They can buy or finance an extraordinary amount of assets and they can revise regulations, if necessary, to improve liquidity or enhance lending. They can often, simply by asking, get banks to take certain actions that they want. It is a mistake to think that they don't have significant tools at their disposal. Of course, we hyper-focus on today's problems, and they often overshadow the progress we are making across the globe. We should not overlook the positive signs. In addition to the strong U.S. economy, the world is still growing. Trade issues may be properly resolved, and Brazil, among others, has turned the corner economically. If a downturn starts and leads to darker scenarios, we will be prepared. And we also believe the U.S. government will eventually respond adequately. 8. We are prepared for, though we are not predicting, a recession. The key point here is that a fairly healthy U.S. economy will be confronting a wide variety of issues in 2020 and 2021. It's hard to look at all the issues facing the world and not think the range of possible outcomes is broader and that the odds of bad outcomes might be increasing. And certain factors like confidence, which we know is important, can be easily damaged by bad policy, unexpected events, or even high market volatility. The next recession may not resemble prior recessions. Next time, the cause may be just the cumulative effect of negative factors, the proverbial last straw on the camel's back. We are always prepared to deal with the next recession. We generally do not spend a lot of time guessing about when the next recession will be. We manage our business knowing that there will be cycles. First and foremost, we will continue to serve our clients. From the prior parts of this letter, you can see that we continue to make responsible loans to our clients during and after the Great Recession when they needed us most. And we will do that again. We will not stop investing in our future, investing in technology, or building new branches. We will continue to make markets for our clients. We will not overreact to the credit cycle. We will mitigate risk. We may reduce risk by taking on fewer new clients or by syndicating or hedging risk. And we may reduce risk by managing our portfolio of securities and loans unrelated to clients. We will exercise more of our muscle in terms of managing expenses, monitoring headcount, and creating more efficiencies. We will have special credit teams created in advance to deal with any problematic credits. Finally, we will be seeking out new ways to grow and compete. Our experience is that recessions do create opportunities for healthy companies to enhance their franchises, generally by serving clients where other companies cannot.